0: Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown, the show where we decode things ghost passengers, the haunted taxi cabs of Japan. Uh, if you're new to the show, welcome, welcome. This is a skeptical show. I, I, did I tell this story before? I always wanted to call, or I thought about calling this channel like skeptic something or other, you know, like this. But then I felt that word's got such negative connotations, even though that's clearly what I am. Uh, it's sort of a skeptic show where we look at things through a bit of a skeptical lens. You're probably not new here, so I'm explaining this for about four new people who are watching. Hello, guys. Thanks for being here. This is your first episode. <laughs> We're not off to a storming start, are we? Uh, the format of the show is Danny. One of my writers has written me a script I've never read this before. I've never heard of ghost taxi cabs. (laughs) Probably because they're not real. Just jump in, shall we? Thank you, Danny. It's hard not to take offense when you feel that you're engaging in pleasant conversation with a stranger, only to find out they make a suspiciously swift exit as soon as you turn your back for a second to pick up another cocktail sausage. I hate this sort of thing, where you're at some, like, party or whatever, or some event, and it's like, you're just talking to someone, and then you just end up, and you're just like, I don't know, I, I, like, I like people. I'm quite an extroverted person. Like, I'll just go and chat and have a little bit of a convo with someone. But there's sometimes where you're just like, I just don't want to do this. I just don't want to, Oh. <laughs> Hello. It's a delivery man, now it's like an unboxing channel, what did I get today? I'm just gonna open this underneath the desk in case it's something embarrassing, not really just because it's got my address on it. It's almost certainly a sponsorship thing because I demand everyone says, send stuff with FedEx because they're the most competent delivery company that I've found. Although these tear off strips are not exactly the easiest. Oh it's some new Raycon earbuds. That's exciting. They're probably not sponsoring today's episode, but they'll be sponsoring one in the future. Woo! Fortunately, it only happens to be about three times a week, four max. What? <laughs> I've gone on a ramble and got a delivery since, uh, oh, about talking to someone and then they turn their back. I don't know, I'm like, oh great, they've left. <laughs> it evolves into a bigger problem when the disappearing stranger is meant to be your taxi passenger and they vanished into thin air before paying their fare. But what was the Japanese city of, oh god, Ishinomaki? But why was the Japanese city of Ishinomaki recently struck by an epidemic of ghost taxi passengers who didn't realize they were dead before climbing into the cab? Can the other reports of mysterious ghostly visitors and disturbing spirit possessions in the local area be put down to pranks, hallucinations, or something else buried far deeper within the beliefs and culture of a largely non-religious nation? And how did one of the deadliest natural disasters in japan japanese history lead to further haunting consequences in which families apparently lost relatives who had died many many years ago (laughs) danny what are you talking about i'm already lost there's a disaster there's ghosts there's taxis danny what's happening stay seated and i'll get the meter running I would never have fancied being a late-night taxi driver in the UK. It's one thing dealing with the general public in the harsh glare of sunlight when most customers are still reasonably sober, but it's quite another to deal with them on Saturday night when they're pissed out of their heads and prone to either starting a fight or vomiting in the glove compartment. Yeah, dude. Like, fortunately, somehow. (laughs) Somehow. I've never thrown up in a taxi, at least that I remember, but I'm pretty sure I never have. But surely this must happen all the time, because, I don't know, the number of times I've been like, hey, let's go home, let's go, and get a taxi, and then you're like, you're really drunk. And I don't get travel sick. Okay, that's not true, I get terribly travel sick on boats for some reason, but cars, I'm fine. But people get travel sick, and people get drunk sick, and then combine those... It's like, surely this must happen Or Like, if you're a taxi driver on a Saturday night, isn't it kind of a guarantee that at least one or two people are going to throw up in your taxi? It sounds horrible. I always tried to be polite and cheerful to the troubled taxi drivers in my neighbourhood, and I only ever got thrown out of the vehicle once. I've also never been thrown out of a taxi. After a boozy night, at least... It's always one of those things you've got to caveat as far as I can remember, because I've definitely taken taxi journeys and been like, how did I get home last night? I'm in bed, wow! <laughs> Oh, God. After a boozy night out, I was sitting in the back seat and smoking a cigarette. Either you're really drunk, Daddy, or this is in the past. Uh, Whilst well, attempting to flick the ash out of the window, but I didn't quite realise the window was shut. And so I was effectively just stubbing out the cigarette on the glass. I have thrown up in a car, not a taxi, but uh, I don't know, I must have been like 16 or 17. And one of my mates, we were coming home from the pub, and we were, I, was, I was particularly off my face. And... Uh, My mate's parents were dropping me off at home, (laughs) like, the boys have had a bit too much to drink. And, uh, yeah, I threw up inside their car, and it was like a new, I think it was a Range Rover. (laughs) I was like, there's windows open. Oh, the window's not open. I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, God, I sound like a right alcoholic. It has been a very long time since I've been that drunk. (laughs) As sparks started buzzing across the interior like a cloud of angry fireflies, the driver got all grumpy and told me in no uncertain terms that my journey was over. Ah! Danny, what are you doing? Smoking inside a taxi? When was that last... I can't remember that being legal in my lifetime, and I know Danny's a bit older than me, but wow, when was that? it never happened again. In contrast, I can remember one acquaintance of mine who used to be a taxi driver's nightmare. His party trick was to wait until the taxi had arrived at the destination and then quickly scarf without paying. Oh, that's the worst though. What, that's just, that's like you've not had too much to drink. That's like you're a dick. It wasn't a very well thought out trick though, the taxi driver usually just had to get out and follow the guy to his own front door and then collect the fare. I did once ask the guy why he didn't at least ask the taxi driver to drop him off a few blocks away from his own house that it wasn't immediately obvious where he lived. The guy looked at me like I was an idiot and responded that he wasn't prepared to walk the last stretch on foot after he'd gone all to all the trouble of booking a bloody taxi. Of course how silly of me however whilst the life of a british taxi driver may have been challenging it perhaps pales in comparison to the challenges faced by a taxi driver in Shinamaki in the 2010s when a typical deceased passenger would ask to be taken to a location that no longer existed before blinking out of sight from the rearview mirror well If you're a taxi driver, someone gets in the car and it's like, take me to John's house, and it's like, well, mate, John's house doesn't exist anymore. And you're like, okay. (laughs) So, that's it. End of conversation. Like, you're not driving around forever, are you? What's going on? But before we embark on this strange journey, we first need to remember the tragic events of 2011 which led to so many of the usual destination points getting wiped completely from them. On March eleventh, 2011, Japan's northeastern Tohoku province was hit by a triple-decker disaster, after which life and, it seems, death Would never quite be the same again it started with an earthquake centered in the pacific ocean around 45 miles east of tohoku the undersea megathrust earthquake jesus megathrust sounds like it's it's a megathrust earthquake people are gonna die you know it it's called a megathrust it's either death or something sexual Uh, And it shook the earth for a full six minutes. The 9.1 magnitude earthquake was the most powerful since records began in 1900 and the largest to ever hit Japan. The force of the earthquake triggered a terrifying tsunami which traveled up to six miles inland in many places. The waves hit speeds of more than 435 miles per hour and reached heights of 133 feet, destroying everything in their path. And just when you thought Japan was having an already pretty bad day, the tsunami then triggered a cooling system failure in the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, which led to the meltdown. Down of three of the plants reactors releasing radiation into the atmosphere yeah I remember watching this on the news and that like while this was happening and it was like the the Japanese people were giving like a press conference or whatever it was like we're quite concerned about um, the tsunamis effect on a nuclear power station to the north we're sure everything's fine and then I remember watching that being like it's not fine is it <laughs> it's not gonna be fine this sounds like bad news and then it was the subsequent contaminated danger zone spread over a total of 12 miles and saw a hundred of his Fifty thousand citizens evacuated from their homes the cleanup operation continues to this day tens of thousands of homes were destroyed by the tsunami in a single day along with schools hospitals roads and railways the world bank estimated that the total economic cost was in the region of 235 billion dollars making it the most expensive disaster in history that is extraordinary That's an impact on a GDP, that amount of money. But it was the cost of human life that will never be forgotten. As Japan faced its heaviest death toll since the dropping of the atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, the Tohoku disaster claimed 19,759 lives, with an additional 2,553 people still officially missing. And today, well over 200,000 citizens are still living in makeshift temporary accommodation after their homes were destroyed that was a bad disaster i'm recording this just after the earthquakes hit turkey and syria and maybe a couple of weeks week and a half after and 50,000 people are, are confirmed dead already that's an extraordinary terrible disaster although the one that always strikes me as people just don't seem to be quite aware of how disastrous it was was the 2004 indian earthquake indian ocean earthquake and tsunami which killed a quarter of a million people which is just I mean, you look at this, the Japanese tsunami, and you think, yeah, 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 in the 2004 one, they're in the same ballpark. They're not. That other one killed 10, uh, what, nearly 15 times as many people. Uh, sorry, 12, 12 times as many people. It's just absolutely, it's just an incredible disaster. One of the, and I, I mean, I know it's, it's, it feels a little bit tasteless to rank disasters, but it always just it always just surprises me people just don't seem to remember just how bad that one was one of the hardest hit areas was the city of ishinomaki in the miyagi prefecture the coastal city surrounded by mountains and rivers is known for its commercial fishing but is often regarded as a forgotten backwater of japan that hasn't progressed at quite the same pace as the majority of the nation sounds kind of nice to be honest like that a little fishing village out there where time forgot they don't have instagram i mean they probably do it's probably full of people with instagram taking pictures of this like little japanese fishing village isn't it Oh god <laughs> sometimes i just want to go and live in the woods like that that unabomber dude i mean you know live in the woods without making of all the bombs and stuff just you know chilling out there away from the internet and everything like that and i know it's kind of counterintuitive because obviously what i do is i make a living on the internet but sometimes you're just like it's all a bit too much isn't it can't we just go live in the forest and like chop down trees and make a wood thing and my, my family would be like no <laughs> what are you talking about don't we don't want to do that <laughs> are you insane and it's like no, no, no. I've just really recently been really enjoying this uh, this little piece of writing called Industrial Society and Its Future. <laughs> the locals have something of a reputation for not making a fuss, not voicing their minds, and not speaking up for themselves. It may be an undeserved reputation rooted in ignorant stereotyping, but a typical citizen of ishinomaki is often, perhaps, unkindly described as reluctant to express their true feelings, preferring instead to keep a lid on their emotions and quietly get on with their lives without making a song or a dance about everything. This, this. this little Japanese village and the UK. (laughs) Stiff upper lip? Even the most emotionally reserved person in the world would have had a hard time keeping a stiff upper lip following the impact of the disaster on Ashina Maki. Nearly half of the entire city was flooded, 29,000 people lost their homes, and well over 3,000 residents were killed, including 74 young children who weren't evacuated quickly enough from the small local village school. We'll return to the story of Akawa Primary School a little bit later on, but whilst the events of that tragic day are still likely to haunt Japan far into the future as a gradual rebuilding of a battered region continues today, a haunting of a more specific kind was to plague the city of Ishinomaki throughout the next decade when it appeared that some of the many victims of the disaster were still trying to get a ride home ghostly activity of many different forms and spectres was first reported uh, within the first few months of the disaster, and the most widely reported was that of phantom taxi passengers who were never likely to offer much in the way of a tip. But the reported strange activity rumbled ominously onwards for several more years, actually growing in intensity rather than quietly fading away. And it wasn't until 2016 that a sociology student decided that the specific cases of the phantom taxi passengers warranted a detailed investigation. Dr. Kiyoshi Kanabishi is a senior professor of sociology at the Tohoku Gakuin University. I'm sorry, Japanese people, but I'm, tr- I'm not. I mean, I'm not trying that hard. I'm attempting. I'm, I'm not looking up at any, or anything. The pronunciations, I mean, I know I'm butchering them. But it's okay. Don't worry. He strongly encourages every student to come up with an original topic for their senior thesis. One such female student by the name of Yukakudu came up with a paper called The Awakened Spiritual Earthquake Studies, for which she spent a whole year traveling to Ishinomaki almost every day to tra- track down local taxi drivers who may have picked up passengers from another plane. She apparently spoke to well over 100 taxi drivers throughout the course of the year and always kicked things off with the opening question, Did you have any unusual experiences after the disaster? I like that it's sociology people researching this, because if it was, you know, Ghost Hunters or the History Channel or whoever, you'd be like, oh god, we're about to be in for a whole lot of nonsense. But when it's sociology, you know, they're going to be looking at the underlying causes for people actually seeing these things like stress and and all of this stuff. Unfortunately, the vast majority of the taxi drivers were less than forthcoming. In fact, many of them seemed upset that they were being asked such a question, whilst others turned outright angry and told Yuka where to get off. But seven taxi drivers were ultimately coaxed into opening up to Yuka, and although their independent experiences were separated by miles and, miles and months, their stories were remarkably similar. Perhaps the most eerie tale was that that was that of a taxi driver who claims to have picked up a young woman from the transport station who was wearing an unseasonal winter coat. After climbing into the back of the cab, the young woman asked the driver to take her to the min district, a fairly small area outside of the central city. The driver found this to be a baffling request. He wouldn't have battered an eyelid a few years earlier, but the issue was now that that most of this district had been wiped out by the disaster, leaving little more than a barren shell. He asked the passenger if she was sure she wanted to be taken to such a desolate place, pointing out that there was nothing there anymore. There was a long, haunting pause before the passenger spoke again, this time in a trembling voice, and she now appeared in a state of confusion as she quietly wailed, Have I died? When the driver turned around, the woman had disappeared yuka heard other similar stories in which the drivers actually started up their meters and made the full trip before realizing that something wasn't quite right in one example the passenger asked to be taken to the local mountain park but refused to verbally elaborate on his request simply pointing desperately forwards whenever prompted for directions after the driver reached the destination and turned around for payments the passenger had vanished on another occasion, a taxi driver had taken a passenger to a residential address, but discovered on arrival that the house had been reduced to rubble during the disaster. The bewildered driver turned around and asked the passenger if he was sure he'd got the right address, but he realized that he was now talking to himself. These feel like ghost stories. I want some, I want some evidence. I'm so skeptical. Let's uh, let's carry on. The stories from all seven drivers contain subtle differences, but they all shared startlingly similar themes. The passengers were always young, they were always wearing winter clothing and often appeared to be drenched even though it was a hot sunny day, and they always disappeared into thin air after requesting to be taken to a place that no longer existed in the aftermath of the Tohoku disaster. The implication would seem to be that these young passengers were victims of the disaster still wearing their drenched clothing and still trying to get back home safely without fully realizing That they'd already perished. This begs the question: Why did it take a whole year for Yuka to interview just seven taxi drivers? Yeah, it feels like okay, she went out to interview most of them, and she's like, "Look, how many? Seven of them." It's like, yeah, but how many did you ask? And how many just told you to go away or didn't have any experience at all? I hope these just contain something else of note. Otherwise, it sounds like she was just taking the piss. Apparently, she graduated with flying colours, though. So i guess there's hope for us all another question pops into my mind why were these traveling ghosts only ever bothered about catching a taxi why weren't any of them spotted in uh, trying to catch a bus or a train or riding a bike or driving their own car why weren't any of them observed just wandering out of the greengrocers holding a fresh cabbage i suppose the reason could be that you don't hear too many ghost stories relating to buses and bicycles and cabbages whereas the concept of phantom taxi passengers feels more like a modern take on the old urban legend of the Vanishing Hitchhiker, which could have inspired or influenced the taxi drivers in some way. That seems likely. I don't know the Vanishing Hitchhiker though, I assume it's got something to do with a Vanishing Hitchhiker. Um, I feel like this is one of those things where it's like, there's just rumours going around with the taxi drivers, and there's like ghost stories, and then one of them's like, yeah, 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 that happened to me too. And, you're like, and The other guys are like, really? And the like, yeah, definitely. And then someone else is like, yeah, me three and these like just legends and ghost stories spread because that's what ghost stories do the oldest version of the european tale stretched back hundreds of years Oh, we are going to learn about the vanishing hitchhiker that's nice a traveler on horseback would kindly pick up passengers scrounging a lift to the next town only for the strangely silent passenger to mysteriously disappear before the journey was complete often leaving behind a personal item such as a scarf or a purse to indicate that the whole thing hadn't just been a vivid hallucination or a bad acid trip as the years rolled on the horses and wagons of old evolved into cars and taxis, but the general theme of the story remained the same, and was often told around campfires and pub tables as a true story. One of the most famous versions involves a driver picking up a mysterious young girl on a highway who asks to be taken home. But upon arriving at the address, the girl has disappeared, and the relatives at home tell the driver that the girl died in a tragic accident many years ago. Oh, I've heard that one. That's an urban legend that I'm familiar with. This is just the Japanese version of that, and it's sort of a modern urban legend, like the people having the kidneys removed and waking up in the bathtub full of ice, which apparently has never happened, despite all the urban legends about it another twist to the tale which became particularly popular during the 20th century was the addition of a double prophecy element into the mix one of which becomes true during the course of the story adding weight to the other prediction of an upcoming major global event so for example a lone hitchhiker or taxi taxi passenger is unable to pay the driver in money but they offer a tantalizing glimpse into the future instead oh my god that sounds real shortly before vanishing from sight, they, they tell the driver that he'll find a dead body in his car by the end of the day and that the second coming of Jesus is imminent. Oh my god, <laughs> how is there going to be a dead body in my taxi by the end of the day? How's that going to happen? Later that same day on his way home, the driver witnesses a terrible car accident and takes it upon himself to rush a seriously injured victim to hospital, but the victim dies on the back seat before they reach their destination, fulfilling the first prophecy. The seriously spooked driver then starts going to church in preparation for the comeback of Jesus. Again, variations on this tale of the vanishing prophet were often presented as true stories designed to send chills up the spines of listeners and convince them that an earth-shattering event was just around the corner, such as a global pandemic, the outbreak of the Third World War, or a new Simon Whistler channel dedicated to fancy dress costumes for pet cats. I mean, we'll get there eventually. These urban ghost stories have always proven to be particularly popular in Japan, where home brewed spin offs have evolved over the years, including the tale of a driverless phantom taxi which cruised the late night streets surrounding the Imperial Palace in 1931. Anyone unfortunate enough to catch a glimpse of the ghost cab would be dead within two days. So, there does appear to be a long established relationship between taxis and ghosts, and it's a relationship which is very much alive and kicking in Japan. In fact, taxi ghost stores are a thriving industry in Japan, offering paying punters the opportunity to hit to hitch a cab to some of the country's most haunted spots and hear the accompanying chilling stories firsthand from the drivers experience ghostly visitations from beyond the grave bearing all of this in mind it could be the case that some japanese taxi drivers are just expected to have at least one ghost story in them just as every professional stunt performer is expected to share at least one story in which they broke every bone in their body after accidentally setting themselves on fire and falling through a plate of glass it goes with the territory however the sociology student. Yukakudo believes that the taxi drivers might have been telling the truth. Yeah, telling the truth, like, obviously there's no ghosts, because ghosts aren't real. But they could be traumatized from this horrific event that happened. She says, Young people feel strong chagrin at their deaths when they cannot meet the people they love. As they want to convey their bitterness, they may have chosen taxis as a medium to do so. wait, 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 what? 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 I thought we weren't ghost hunters! You're a sociology student! Do some science! (laughs) Why are you a fucking medium? This is some mega bullshit! you got flying colours, you're just making shit up! It's like, oh yeah, how's that happen? Ghosts. Ghosts. First class degree. What is this nonsense? What are you talking about you've disappointed me greatly the university professor dr kiyoshi kanabishi has made it clear that he doesn't believe in ghosts good man but noted the yuka study included physical records which supported the claims of the drivers to some degree oh oh she did did she let's see about that whenever these drivers started the meter they immediately became responsible for the fare if a passenger disappears into a puff of smoke without paying the driver then has to cover the total cost racked up on the meter out of his own pocket well of course he does he's the ta- well i mean he has to pay for the costs of the taxi oh wait are ah, do they work for like a taxi company and then he has to pay it that's some bullshit who came up with that the co- is that that is a shitty move by a company right there i mean you can see why they do it but it's very douchey how about just i don't know like i've mentioned it a few times capitalism fine but don't be a dick don't be a dick this is a very dick move all this is recorded on the driver's logs and these physical records appear to corroborate the stories whenever a driver claimed to have taken a ghost passenger to a location that no longer existed the date and time matched up with a log entry which confirmed that an unpaid fare was covered by the driver if they were playing pranks It was costing them but these logs hardly count as concrete proof and it could be argued that there's a fundamental problem with the whole thesis none of these taxi drivers are named and so there's no opportunity for any kind of follow-up interviews or further investigation a brutal skeptic might even go so far as to say that you could just made up the whole thing to impress the professor with the original topic that he was pestering her to come up with and she spent most of the year relaxing down in the outdoor hot spring spa. that's remarkably specific danny um yeah someone might say that obviously (laughs) And it wouldn't be us, but someone might draw that conclusion. That she just made this shit up, maybe? Someone's making stuff up somewhere because ghosts are not real. Besides, if an infestation of dead spirits really had descended into the taxi ranks of Ishina Markey, why had nobody thought to install video cameras into the taxis to catch out the fair dodging cadaverous culprits? Yeah, don't they have cameras? Surely taxis have security cameras in them. Sure, like, if you've got one of those dash cameras, wouldn't you just twist it around? And just be like, just watch the passengers? Aren't you more likely to have trouble with passengers as a taxi driver than you are to have with driving? Also, why not just have two? Just have one facing forward and one facing backwards. And people would be like, I don't like being filmed. It's like, okay, get out of the taxi then, get another taxi. Surely, that's, surely they have cameras these days for safety and, like, making sure people pay. Shuffling off this mortal car is no excuse in my book for scampering when it's time to foot the bill. Dead or alive, it's sheer bad manners. I'll pull back up for another second, though. In the very same year, Yuka submitted a thesis. Press reports from around the world got into a frenzy when they suggested that a taxi ghost had indeed been caught on camera. Not on camera inside the actual taxi, but on CCTV footage monitoring an unnamed taxi rank somewhere in Japan. The black and white footage, which quickly went viral, shows a man heading towards a white cab and climbing inside the vehicle. But he's followed by an eerie shadow shape, which also seems to pass through the taxi's doors. That just sounds like an artifact on the video. It It seems as if neither the driver nor the male passenger is aware of the third presence hitching a ride. Some have suggested that if you zoom in and squint really hard, then you can then start making things up in your own overheated imagination. The dark shape looks not entirely dissimilar to a hunched, ghostly, long-haired woman in a black robe with a hood. The newspapers running the story typically went with a headline along the lines of, is this the long-awaited proof that tsunami taxi ghosts exist? No. (laughs) Well, I'm going to stick my neck out on this one and say that no, it's not. Uh, We know very little about the exact source and location of the recording, and it's more than likely that the grainy low-quality footage has been digitally edited and not even in a particularly compelling way. I would at least have the ghostly hunched woman give a cheeky thumbs up to the camera as she sneaks into the back of the taxi. It's almost certainly an unconvincing prank, but is that true of the whole saga of the tsunami taxi ghosts in general? All we have to go on so far is a thesis that includes contributions and physical logs from anonymous taxi drivers but for what it's worth i don't think anyone was pissing about here we often hear wacky tales from individuals who claim to have been abducted by ufos and ainly probed by aliens from the planet flutterwinkle and they're usually dismissed as fictional nonsense made up by people who were desperate for attention and we often hear slightly implausible stories from recently bereaved family members who are convinced that their drunk uncle jack sent them a message from the afterlife in the form of an empty bottle of white lining cider blowing about the grave during the funeral service but i don't think anyone was seeking attention in this case quite the opposite in fact as the vast majority of taxi drivers approached by yuka didn't want to talk about it and i believe the thesis to be a genuine study which featured contributions from real people who were hardly in the mood for playing games all right then danny how do you explain it but before we move on to the reasons why it's important to note that this ghostly activity wasn't exclusively kicking off in the taxi ranks Richard Lloyd Parry is a British journalist and and editor of the Tokyo-based The Times of London paper and he's lived in Japan for over 20 years and reported extensively on the Tohoku disaster wait there's a paper in Tokyo called The Times of London okay in 2017, he wrote a book entitled Ghosts of the Tsunami, for which he spent a great deal of time traveling around to Hoku and talking to survivors of the tragedy. Despite the title, the scope of the book wasn't exclusively limited to ghosts of the spiritual kind. It also encompassed the specter still hanging over the community in the face of perceived political failures, bureaucratic mistakes, unanswered questions, cover-ups, and occasional baffling decisions made when the crisis first struck. Yeah, because he's a journalist. This sounds like a really good book that's talking about the aftermath of a major disaster and the effects it has on society. Rather than... Oh! There's ghosts in taxis <laughs> it's like the quality stuff <laughs> not what we do on this channel when we talk about ghosts in taxis just accidentally shitting on all, all over my own channel there aren't i the most upsetting example of the latter relates to a to- the total of 75 children who died whilst in school on the day of the disaster and the fact that 74 of those all from the same little Akawa primary school in Ashinomaki. The school had been made aware of the arrival of the tsunami. There were even regular warnings being yelled through loudspeakers on passing trucks, urging everyone to evacuate to higher ground immediately as the whole area was about to get consumed. Yet the school responded by keeping everyone inside for a full 45 minutes before finally deciding to make a move that came far too late, resulting in the deaths of 74 children along with 10 teachers. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks, then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba da ba ba ba. What are you doing just sitting there and waiting for the tsunami to come? You know it's coming. As an no early warning system. It's remarkable that we have the technology to do that. Why are you ignoring it? The authorities initially seemed hesitant to even address this and preferred to brush it under the carpet, hoping that nobody would bring it up again. It wasn't such an outlandish hope in a nation where people still cling on to the historical notion that anyone who dares to question the official doctrine is just dismissed as a nuisance hellbent on stirring up trouble. That wasn't a odd this time though following rare scenes of bereaved japanese parents speaking their minds to local officials at public meetings and demanding answers for the inexplicable actions of the school the families of 23 of the children sued ishinomaki city and miyagi prefecture in a case that rumbled on for a couple of years the presiding judge of the district court ultimately found the school to be responsible for the deaths and ordered the city and prefecture to pay compensation totaling the equivalent of just under 13 million dollars which uh is not that much how many children was it 75 children 13 million divided 75 ways basically that's not that much money although as the story that forms the beating heart of richard lloyd parry's book on the lingering ghosts of japan's historical state-centered ideology it also takes the time to explore the more traditional breed of spooky ghost when he pops into a traveling monk cafe on a tour of tohoku reverend taiyo kaneda is a zen buddhist priest who usually struts his monkey stuff in a temple located around 30 miles outside of the tohoku coast he was kept very busy in the immediate aftermath of the disaster overseeing hundreds of funerals within a matter of weeks but he later became concerned that the people left behind to grieve were in just as much of a need of his services as the victims that he was laying to rest. Probably more so, because I don't want to be morbid about it, but once you're dead, you don't really need anything else. You're dead. It's that like you don't care about anything. Um and the people who are left behind are the ones that need more help. Reverend Canada explains that public displays of grief don't generally go down very well in Japan, and bereaved citizens are usually expected to bottle up their feelings rather than express them. <laughs> Japanese and British culture Sometimes surprisingly similar. But the Reverend was worried that the survivors of the disaster were becoming overwhelmed with this pent-up grief, and were in need of an outlet to express it. To that end, he set up a group called Café de Monku, which traveled around the local countryside armed with tea and biscuits and listening ears. The idea was to encourage citizens to sit down with Reverend Kaneda and his fellow priests in a relaxed and non-judgmental environment and share their painful experiences and feelings on the disaster. This is a really nice thing to do. Uh, visitors to the mobile Monk Café were finally given an opportunity to voice the feelings that they had felt inclined to bury for so long. They talked of a loss and heartbreak. They talked of the turmoil of the present and the anxieties for the future and they talked of ghosts it seemed as if many survivors of the tohoku disaster had a ghostly encounter to share and not all of them were taxi drivers one guy in kurahara claimed that he could no longer go out in the rain as he saw the faces of the victims in puddles there were sightings of ghosts queuing patiently in places where there used to be shops before they were swept away in the tsunami a fire station in Joe reported that they had been continually receiving emergency calls to houses that had been flattened when in the disaster. the calls only stopped after the firefighters drove to the ruins and prayed for the dead. All right then and the reverend heard several similar stories of a female ghost haunting a refugee community in onagawa apparently this uninvited guest would knock on doors of the temporary accommodation and make herself at home with a nice cup of tea despite being dead a trivial matter which she did not seem to be aware of after she had finished off her tea and said goodbyes it was claimed that she always left behind a small puddle of seawater on the cushion on which she had been perched i'm presuming that the hosts made absolutely sure that it was seawater otherwise i can think of a far simpler explanation for this wandering spirit one of the most disturbing cases that Reverend Kaneda had to deal with involved the apparent possession of a builder whose real name was not divulged, but whom the Reverend referred to as Takashi Ono. Takashi had taken a walk down to the beach to survey the devastation of the tsunami, but he didn't quite seem to be the same guy when he returned to the family home for dinner that evening. I wouldn't be surprised. Like, if that was what my day was, I'd be like, holy shit. Like, that would be on my mind. For the next three days he started grunting like a wild animal and rolling around in the mud he started licking the furniture he started screaming and snarling at his family and total strangers alike barking out phrases such as drop dead everyone else is dead so die everything must die and be lost it sounds like this guy had a psychotic break and he spent every night writhing around in his bed whilst wailing that something was falling on top of him he needs to see a doctor asap (laughs) jesus Takashi was eventually persuaded by his family to chill out with a cup of tea down at the Cafe de Manku, uh, where Reverend Kaneda came to the conclusion that Takashi was under the possession of both human and animal spirits who had perished in the disaster. Quite bizarrely, the Reverend put this possession down to the flippant eating of an ice cream. Mate, what is going on? This guy doesn't need you. He needs uh, some sort of drugs and treatments and stuff. He doesn't need to, like, hear your ice cream bullshit. No offense. I un- like. I feel bad shitting on you because i really think that your tea and biscuits talking about people with their grief and stuff is something that is incredibly valuable but you've got to draw a line when it's clear that someone needs medical intervention don't you come on when takashi had first visited the beach to survey the wreckage he had been holding an ice cream in his hand and this may have been considered a tad disrespectful by the dead who had been channeling their resentment at being dead through the body of takashi i get what i mean if someone came to visit my grave in the hopefully distant future i don't want them to start nose-bagging a giant packet of monster munch or sucking on a lollipop fortunately takashi's problems were quickly resolved see that's the interesting thing danny like with the de- whole dead thing it's like yeah 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 but i'm dead so i literally couldn't care like if someone took a shit on my grave it'd be like well <laughs> i mean it's like i'd rather they did it now but i won't care because <laughs> i'll be dead uh so look the funky monk splashed a bit of holy water on his head and recited a few buddhist sutras nice one reverend many more survivors of the taoki disaster had an otherworldly tale to tell whether that be a ghost story or a ghost sighting or a ghost visitor who leaves damp spots on the furniture or that old chessman a demonic possession provoked by the flippant eating of an ice cream but there's still little in the way of cold hard facts and when i say little i mean well absolutely nothing at all we may have ventured beyond the taxi ranks but we're still not getting any real names or compelling evidence i'm not suggesting either reverend Tayo Kaneda or respected award-winning journalist richard Lloyd parry is just making stuff up but we're essentially still talking about ghost stories being told around a campfire albeit these ghost stories are being told in broad daylight with cups of tea and a decent selection of biscuits yeah i don't think they're making stuff up and i don't like i don't i I think the reverend believes in the stuff that you know he's the ice cream possession and all of this stuff i happen to think it's utter nonsense but i don't think he doesn't believe it and i think the journalist guy he's just reporting on the stories that he heard that's fine that's what journalists do okay but what was it about this particular disaster that inspired so many ghost stories let's know the huge death toll perhaps the trauma the the, the the trauma to the population many of them only taking shape years after the events. was it something to do with the nature of the disaster or the culture and beliefs of the people affected And could this only have happened in japan japan's a refreshingly non-religious nation according to global polls japan is one of the least religious countries on earth and has little time for religious affiliation or ritual i happen to live in one of the others czech republic's one of the least religious countries on earth if not the least religious i think it might be number one for least religiousness it's nice That makes them sound like my kind of godless people, even if we're all destined to burn in hell for the rest of eternity. Yeah, I'll take the risk. (laughs) Because hell's not real. After all, it's got to be a healthier and more effective alternative to living your life by the rules of outdated, potty scripture written thousands of years ago. Instead, the people of Japan can navigate their way through life using science and facts and logic and reason and common bloody sense, right? Well, you'd think so. Yeah, that's another thing. Like, here, check, it might be like one of the least religious countries in the world. But I don't know, like my mother-in-law, believes in like crystal healing and all that kind of shit like her dog um, got like ball cancer and she's like yeah i've got this like cancer healing music that i play to him and i think it's shrinking and i'm like just have it chopped off and i mean they did have it chopped off and they had an operation scheduled and stuff but it was like a month away or whatever so she bought him all this super expensive and these super expensive drugs which i just googled and just turned out to be a total scam just because she believes in all this woo-woo stuff And like crystal balls and all that shit. And like, just because you don't believe in religion doesn't mean you don't believe in all this, like, spiritual nonsense. Unfortunately, the truth is that many people of Japan have cast aside religion in favor of superstition and spiritual traditions, exactly, and well, also religion okay the two main organized religions of Japan Buddhism and Shinto may appear on the surface to have little impact or influence on modern Japanese life it's reported that only three percent of Japanese citizens identify as Shinto which might seem as if it's hardly worth mentioning it's about the same percentage as people who used to identify as Jedi on British census forms making it the fourth most popular religion of 2001 in the UK that's amazing but it's still I think I remember filling out the census or my parents doing it I'm, I can't remember remember. remember if they did but it was just like writing Jedi on there because it was what everyone was doing at the time it was I remember this it was like a big movement to get Jedi as an official religion (laughs) I didn't even like Star Wars but I was into that but it's a bit of a misleading stat a Japanese citizen is only likely to identify as Shinto if they belong to an organized Shinto sect but this overlooks the fact that a massive chunk of the Japanese population still follows Shinto traditions and observes Shinto rituals even if they're not fully signed up members with a badge and a t-shirt and a quarterly newsletter I feel like this is quite similar to the UK in a way. Like here, no one goes to church and no one says they're religious. But in the UK, people would be like, you'd be like, are you religious? And be like, yeah, you know, I'm religious. I'm like Church of England or whatever the default religion is. And it's like, so do you go to church? It's like, nah. And what about God? Well, I mean, maybe. <laughs> but the default answer would be, yeah, yeah, sure, I'm religious. But you're not, are you? <laughs> There's no real universal agreement on whether Shinto is even a religion at all, or if it's more of a kind of custom or tradition or way of life. We'd be here all day if we delved too heavily into Shinto, but it's of particular relevance here to look at the Shinto perception of the relationship between life and death, and why perhaps Japan is a natural stomping ground for ghosts emerging from folklore. Most religions tend to suggest that the moments of death, you get a first-class ticket to either the good place or the bad place, depending on how many elderly ladies you helped cross a busy road. But the Shinto tradition suggests that a recent deceased persons so has a long journey to make across the earthly plane before getting allowed into the afterlife and it's up to the family to help secure a peaceful passage this can only be achieved by holding a proper funeral and regularly visiting and praying at the grave until the wandering spirit finally crosses over to join its ancestors I'm not sure how the family is notified when this happens but let's not worry about that for now The point is that if these rituals aren't properly carried out during this period of purgatory the wandering spirit is at risk of becoming a ghost or at least the japanese version of a ghost known as a yuri which is destined to haunt the locals until either the rituals are completed or a conflict which still ties the spirit to the earthly plane is resolved on top of that if the yuri died under particularly unpleasant circumstances for example the person died prematurely or was murdered or committed suicide they are more likely to evolve into a gaki, a kind of hungry ghost consumed by bitterness and rage who will exact its revenge by going around causing mayhem and mischief knocking shit over possessing flippant ice cream eaters and generally behaving like a bit of a knob this is all relevant because of the nature and aftermath of the tohoku disaster and the fact that the whole religion was relatively slow to develop in comparison with the rest of japan so the citizens are considered more likely to cling fiercely to these old spiritual traditions it was felt that the young victims of the tsunami weren't ready to die, and that this cruel injustice brewed up simmering resentment amongst the young dead, which would block the path to their ancestors. It was a fear intensified by the fact that it took a while to recover the bodies from the disaster. And even when the majority of the bodies were found, there wasn't always the time or resources to go through all of the traditional funeral rituals. Local crematoriums had been hit by a lack of power in the aftermath of the nuclear plant disaster, which caused further issues and delays during a crisis in which there were thousands of bodies to deal with instead of the usual cremation before burial many of the bodies were simply buried in mass graves without service which caused further anguish to survivors who felt that they couldn't pay their respects to their loved ones or help secure a safe passageway to the next chapter of the book of eternity as if all of this wasn't tragic enough there was also a strong feeling that survivors hadn't just lost the victims of the disaster they had also lost their ancestors who died years and years earlier American religious scholar Herman Ooms it has always made perfect sense in Japan, as far back as history goes, to treat the dead as more alive than we do, even to the extent that death becomes a variant, not a negation of life. The writer and journalist richard lloyd parry puts it more bluntly the dead in japan are not as dead as they are in other countries there certainly appears to be less of an obvious barrier between the living and the dead in japan of course it's common around the world to regularly pay respects and attend to gravestones of departed loved ones but the followers of shinto can take this to a whole other level as well as making offerings at the public shrines of ancestors who died centuries ago the japanese are also more likely to reserve a spot at home for the recently deceased in the form of an altar or butsudan these homes shrines of lacquer and gilter la- are usually lavishly decorated with beautiful carvings and filled with personal photographs, letters, and the favourite possessions of the deceased. That's kind of nice. Like a slight little memory box sort of thing. Place to remember the person who died and kind of keep their memories alive. Which uh, I find really, that's a really nice thing to do. And it feels as if the deceased are enjoying a continuation of existence in the home and are still very much treated as part of the living family if your new girlfriend from tohoku suddenly asks you if you'd like to meet her grandparents just be aware that you might end up exchanging pleasantries with a cabinet is that true do they really refer to it like that that would be a bit weird however this cult of the ancestors was itself to receive a tremendous blow during the tohoku disaster not only did the tsunami claim lives but it also destroyed temples memorial books cemetery bolts bolts and thousands of homes containing such altars and memorial tablets and family photographs what we're all going through here in a very long-winded way but interesting danny i'm not not criticizing Uh, is the Japanese people are super primed to believe in ghosts and that if the dead are not properly buried and all of this stuff, then they're more likely to come back and haunt. So it kind of sets you up psychologically to be expecting ghosts to be around. Combine that with uh, societal stresses, and boom, people seeing things that aren't there because ghosts aren't real no matter what shinto says in a way it felt as if the dead had died again family members had now permanently lost the history of some of their older ancestors and along with the strong daily connection with the more recently departed who had been swept away in the destruction of the family home all this led to some unusual solutions on how to keep in contact with lost family members who hadn't been given a proper funeral service or whose shrine along with all of their possessions had been taken by the tsunami one idea which popped up in the coastal city of Otsuchi was known as the Hall of the wild this is essentially a non-working telephone booth slapped on top of a hill overlooking the Pacific Ocean visitors are encouraged to step inside pick up the receiver and send a verbal message to their loved ones which will be carried across the wind the choice of location is significant Ostucci lost over 800 lives to the disaster but a further 400 people are still missing and some family members retain hope that the missing may still yet be found And while speaking through a disconnected telephone might not seem like the most practical method of sending a message to the missing and the dead the call of the wild received no less than 10,000 visitors within its first six years of service the owner of the phone booth believes that it offers a genuine step forward in the grieving process for bereaved families agreed i think this is again a nice thing to do it's a way for people to like it's an outlet for their grief and contained grief may be at the very heart of the explanation for the tsunami ghosts pretty much all the names that we've mentioned so far including the university professor dr kiyoshi kanabishi sociology student yuka kudu british journalist and author richard lloyd parry and buddhist priest reverend taeko kanada may have slightly different takes on the matter but they all broadly agree on one thing everyone who claimed to see a ghost really believed that they saw a ghost Reverend Tiger Kanada may have been under the impression that he exercised demons from a possessed flippant ice cream eater but he also points out that it doesn't matter even if you believe in ghosts or not as he puts it what's real is the suffering and the pain yeah Agreed. I, the only problem I had with this guy is when I felt that the that, that guy who was like making all the animal noises and stuff. He needed intervention. He needed medical attention, not spiritual attention. But otherwise I think everything that this guy is doing is, is excellent. In a Shinto culture which believed without question that bitter restless young souls were wandering the earthly plains after being taken too early and without being afforded the rituals required for safe passage, it's perhaps no huge surprise that people started seeing ghosts, as that's exactly What they were expecting to see it's interesting to note that although the first few reports of ghostly activity surfaced in the immediate aftermath of the disaster they became much more widespread in the years to follow it's been suggested that this was kind of a collective trauma which took a while to manifest as many citizens who had lost their homes in the disaster were initially focused on how exactly they were going to survive for the next day yeah you don't this is the thing like you if you're dealing with an emergency you don't really have much time to reflect and and all of this stuff and that reflection can come uh, quite a bit later it was only when life had started to become a bit more settled again that citizens had time to fully process their thoughts and fears and perhaps bring them to life Before their eyes. A psychiatrist from Ishinomaki by the name of Kaisahara believes that the ghost sightings are down to a form of post traumatic stress disorder, which which spawned grief hallucinations. Seeing ghosts or hallucinations is a common side effect of PTSD, and a recent US study concluded that one in five sufferers reported seeing something that could not be seen by others. It's also possible that certain places trigger certain memories and associations, which in turn trigger mental projections of our worst fears and anxieties, and this could explain why the taxi drivers of Ishinomaki were more likely. Than most to encounter ghosts. They were the ones still driving around the flattened landscape all day and absorbing the constant visual reminders of the catastrophe, perhaps sparking mental visuals uh, which they hadn't been expecting and didn't know how to process. Survivors guilt may also have played a role in the taxi driver visitations feeling weighed down by the nagging concerns why they were allowed to survive when so many others perished and the fact that there's nothing they can do about that outcome some taxi drivers may have been subconsciously attempting to help the victims by offering them a final ride home with no charge None of the taxi drivers who spoke of ghosts voiced any animosity about their presence. One of them even revealed that he would be more than happy to let other ghost passengers get into the back of his cab in the future. But perhaps the biggest catalyst for all of this particular collective trauma was the matter of contained grief bursting out in unexpected ways. As we mentioned earlier, the people of Ishinomaki are known for for bottling their grief in and and going about their business in quiet dignity, whilst the very idea of a public display of grief is frowned upon throughout Japan. Reverend Taiko Kaneda points out, People here don't like to cry. They see it as selfish. There's hardly anyone who hasn't lost a member of their family. Everyone's in the same boat so they don't like to seem self-indulgent whilst it may have appeared the survivors were coping admirably with the task of rebuilding their shattered lives without complaint after the tragedy they were hiding their unresolved anguish which had to come pouring out one way or another. Japan doesn't usually go in for grief counseling, but when the Café de Monku offered a rare sympathetic ear and an outlet to express emotion and a good biscuit, the grief came flooding out in the form of ghost stories with origins buried deep in the cultural beliefs that young restless spirits were roaming the earth with nobody to help them. Whilst the tsunami ghosts may never have existed, they may still at least have played a part in the long healing process and helped to swiftly lift the spirits of a nation that struggles to release the therapeutic forces of grief. Of course we could have got this completely wrong and the truth is that the ghost stories were all completely real which just leaves the question would you rather be a late night taxi driver in the tohoku region or in the UK. The outcome is likely the same. You're going to end up out of pocket from fair dodging passengers, be they alive or dead. But I'd still choose to cruise the streets of Tokyo over the mean streets of Britain. At least the ghosts of Tokyo tend to be fairly polite before scarpering, and they're far less likely to leave you covered in bruises, vomit and hot chili sauce. Danny, no. <laughs> Thank you. That's where we end today's episode. Um, interesting one today. Kind of more like thought, not thoughtful, like, not really the other stuff isn't thoughtful, but like more psychological. And I like that. Sciencey. Thank you for being here if you enjoyed the show please do leave it a review or if you're watching on youtube like and subscribe and i'll see you next time don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket